This week on the Lectures in History podcast, University of Maryland Baltimore County lecturer Jay Yang discusses the history of emergency medical services. His lecture covers the pre-industrial era through the development of 911 and modern state EMS agencies. Hi there. I'm Jonathan from C-SPAN, along with my colleague, Ben. Since C-SPAN's founding 45 years ago, the media world has changed. Remember when there were just a few TV channels? Now we've got streaming, social media, apps, and more. Through all of this, C-SPAN has stayed true to its mission of giving you unfiltered access to government wherever you get your news. As we navigate this challenging media environment with fewer people subscribing to traditional cable packages, our funding has been impacted. That's why we're asking for your help to keep going strong for another 45 years. Please donate today at cspan.org donate. Your contribution, large or small, helps ensure at least another 45 years of witnessing democracy in action. Keep C-SPAN thriving in today's ever-changing media landscape. Visit cspan.org slash donate to make your gift today. Thank you. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Starting again off a little bit, adding on from last class's lecture, right? So last class, we talked a little bit about public health. So we said today we're going to talk a little bit about now the buildup of EMS. Now today's lecture, I will say, is a little bit of hodgepodge of different things coming at you. Right, so we're going to talk not only about obviously the upbringing and start of EMS, but we're going to really talk about also advances in medicine a little bit and kind of talk about some of those other things to really kind of set the picture in regards to what that public health issue was, right? Because we said the public health issue essentially last class was what when it came to EMS creation. Do we remember what we said? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, like accidents on the road and stuff like that, exactly. Right. So again, we're going to build on that and talk a little bit more about, you know, essentially how all that stuff started. So a few things we're going to talk about today. Right. So obviously we're going to define EMS. So what is actual emergency medical services? Right. What do we do in basic terms? And then also summarize some of the history of EMS. Again, we're going to talk brief history just because obviously that could be a whole semester class, really, if we wanted it to be. Right. We're going to identify some significant events, some specific people that helped shape some of the core foundations of EMS and some of the big things that we even still do today, right? And then also kind of finish up class talking about some of the 15 components essential to EMS um, that, again, that they laid out saying, you know, what are probably some of the minimal things needed to even really get an EMS system started in the first place? Okay, so what is EMS? So EMS, a few things, right? So what do we really do? So emergency medical services is what obviously EMS stands for, right? But really at the core function of it, right? At the end of the day, we're trying to do treatment by the right people, right place, right time, right? And doing the right thing. And we say EMS fills the gaps. What is that gap, do we think, right? Because what does EMS do? Yeah. Between initial care and the hospital. Exactly, right? So we're filling that gap. And that's what we really tried to do you know, good things with is filling that gap between where the actual incident, injury or illness, whatever it may be, occurs, and then filling that gap to the hospital. So providing continual care from start of injury to definitive care, which obviously is then the hospital, right? And again, we do that through a multiple of different ways. We'll talk about, again, the advances that kind of came through, but initially we didn't start with all this stuff, right? You know, we have fancy helicopters now, fancy ambulances, way more fancier equipment than what it used to be, but we'll talk about some of those things. So we're gonna go way back in history, and I say way back in history, I say pre-industrial era, but we're gonna talk about what existed back then and what existed back then compared to now. 
simply put, not a whole lot, right? Really nothing compared to what we have now, right? So back in the day, what did exist were the fact that there was really no general hospital, obviously, right? There were no general practitioners. There was no ERs, emergency medicine physicians, right? But what there was were things like almshouses and city dispensaries where there was naturally a collection of some sick people happening in, in those communities, right? So it wasn't advertised to say, hey, if you're sick or whatever, if you need help, come here. It was more so that that's where a lot of them were already populated, right? So naturally, that's where some of those initial kind of what we would explain as today is that pre-hospital care happening. So again, outside of hospital care. Now, in zero formal sense, was that really happening? But again, it was at least some kind of starting point, right? If we had to compare it to something, right? So we talk about resuscitative efforts. And I always love talking about this slide because what's going on? Everyone's like, what in the world is going on in these pictures, right? So I'll tell you, these were resuscitative efforts back in the 1530s, 1773, 1812, all that stuff. What do we think that's going, what do we think's going on here? Comparatively to some of the techniques we use today. Yeah. Stimulation. Okay, what kind? To get the heart okay, to get the heart pumping, so maybe something resembling CPR, so, yeah. something like that, chest, right? Chest compressions. chest compressions, maybe giving breaths and stuff like that. Anyone know what's happening in this first photo here? Anyone, what, anyone know what this medieval device is? It's not medieval by any means, but. I know used to cool down like weapons and anything like used in blacksmith shops. So yes, like way back in the day. So I'll say like, I used to have one in my house. I have a fireplace. It was that thing that, again, it's a billow, right? So it's the thing that pushes air into fires and stuff like that to try to make it a little bit hotter. Now, what's being, what's that being used here for? What do we think, yeah? To put oxygen into patients. Well, not even, to put air. Right now, how effective do we think this is? Now, it's essentially putting a fan up someone's face and saying, hey, here, hopefully this will help you breathe. Right? Not super effective. That being said, though, we do something very similar now, right? which are, again, manual ventilations where, OK, maybe you need to have a good seal, maybe a little bit better equipment. Maybe we could hook up some oxygen. Right? So it's a lot, obviously, much more advanced than what this is. Right? What about the second picture here? What do we think? Any guesses? No wrong answers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is some type of barrel, for sure. What kind? I don't know. What do we think? I will say this second picture always kind of is the interesting one, because I, truly, I, I really don't know. right? I had to look it up, and apparently it has something to do with they thought back in the day that by rolling someone on a barrel, they were pressing on the chest. So with pressures and all that stuff, it was helping the heart beat, I don't know, or sucking air into the lungs, so on and such. What about that last one? Kind of maybe a two-parter here. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that guy's like walking on work while he's like, um, like while like it's over his like kind of chest area. Okay. So two parts. So first of all, what's the benefit of this? Move my patient, move my person who's sick or whatever. It may be from point A to point B without me carrying them, right? The other thing they were trying to do here is apparently when, again, a horse is kind of trotting, right? The body was going up and down. And that was providing apparently some type of chest compression action. Again, looking at all this stuff, right? This stuff is very ridiculous compared to what we have now. But again, as a starting point. Right, it was something. Now I will say, and we'll see if this video plays, we've advanced significantly, right? Not only in regards to having protocols specifically in place on what medications to give, what, uh, when to give those medications, and also the equipment has gone exponentially, obviously a lot better than using billows to try to provide manual ventilation for people, right? To the point where we actually even have devices where, um, we have mechanical devices that actually provide chest compressions for you in the hospital and stuff like that, and also in the pre-hospital setting. Right? So even, again, when I first started, we didn't have stuff like this where we were doing manual compressions the entire time. Has anyone ever done CPR before? Right? How exhausting is this? 
uh, pretty exhausting. And also, for a very small person like me, I can't last that long when doing CPR. Right? But guess what? Again, just because I'm tired, does that mean I can stop? Absolutely not, right? So again, stuff like this. So Lucas uh, came out with a device, or it's called the Lucas 3. This is the third iteration of this device from Physio. Right? Something like this is great, because as long as the battery is still there, that thing's just pumping away right? at the right rate, right depth. So again, super effective, especially in things like pre-hospital medicine or emergency medicine, where yeah, we might have to be doing other things and not use someone to do CPR. Right? And also, while you're moving around and stuff like that, how effective is this? Not super effective. right? This, again, we're making sure that we have continuous, pos um, not positive, effective right? CPR throughout the entirety of that transport or movement or whatever it may be. Right? So other advances in medicine. Right? So again, some big ones here. Right? Things like the development of general, uh, general anesthesia right? or things like the germ theory. So in 1846, at Boston Mass General Hospital, right, Dr. Morton was one of the first ones to actually utilize a form of anesthesia. right? And back in the day, was it the fancy stuff we have now? Absolutely not. It was essentially just ether gas that they used to knock someone out of. That was their form of anesthesia. right? But super effective and also a huge advancement because what could they now theoretically do? Surgery. They could do again, a very whatever their form of surgery was, but they could do surgery, right? Which was a huge advance in medicine. And also the fact that you could now sew things up or cut things or whatever it may be without someone screaming their head off, theoretically, right? So super, super effective and also a huge advancement for surgery. And then also the germ theory, right? 1860s, we discovered that, oh yeah, germs are an actual thing, right? Because before then, what were we doing? Concepts like gloves, Right? Washing your hands after dealing with patients. You can see here, again, they're performing surgery. No one's got gloves. Right? We're just doing it. Right? And obviously then we found out that, yeah, that's probably not the best thing to do. Right? And it was causing things like infections, which was, back in the day, one of the biggest killer of people. Right? Things like infection. That's why people were dying so early. So again, 1865, antiseptic surgical techniques obviously start to get introduced. Things like penicillin, your antibiotics, start to get introduced also in the 1940s. Right? So all those things obviously only help um, life expectancy increase within our patients, which, again, we're going to talk about causes some other issues as well. Okay. So obviously EMS, not only about, or again, emergency medicine, not only about treating people, but how do we move people? How do we categorize people? And, I'll tell you right now, there's going to be a theme that you see throughout this lecture, that theme being a lot of war theaters right, or war settings. I'll tell you right now, a lot of advances in trauma, emergency medicine, and pre-hospital medicine really stem from the war setting. Anyone have a thought on why? Yeah. It's better to prioritize, like, if a person has been shot, they need to be safe faster compared to a person who just got, like, a shrapnel wound. Okay, so we'll say... Types of patients, obviously, there's more readily a type of patient that we could potentially try these treatments on. Absolutely. Anything else? Thought I saw him. Yeah. A lot more abundance. The, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot more abundance, right? So it truly is one of those natural experiments that we're doing, and I hate to call it an experiment, but it's a natural way of seeing again what are some of these clinical practices, and do they work? Do they not work? Right. Because it'd be super unethical of me to obviously go around and create these patients myself, right? So again, the war settings obviously was a great place for a lot of these things to get introduced. And even today, a lot of technologies that we still use today, things like tourniquets, right? Um, specific protocols that we use in trauma medicine, again, a lot of those things developed and really kind of refined in a lot of these war theaters, right? Which is pretty cool. So talking about a few of those things, so talking about transportation initially, right? The concept of actually moving a patient from point of injury to a safer location or somewhere else, right? One of the first times we saw that was actually during the Napoleonic Wars, right? Uh, Dr. Larray, who was a surgeon in Napoleon's army, right, was one of the first to develop slash utilize some type of transportation system, right? Obviously, back in the day, they didn't have cars, so horse and buggies was definitely the luxury method of transportation. Right? But then again, advancing from that, utilizing 
more so, again, motorized vehicles during our other wars. So the Civil War and stuff like that, uh, we started to see also a similar thing of using kind of horse-drawn carriages and stuff like that to move our patients from, right, point of injury to somewhere else because we were finding that, hey, let's get into a safer location and then let's actually treat them, right? Concepts like triage was also developed in the war theater, right? Has anyone heard the term triage before? In a medical setting or not? What's triage? Basic terms. Yeah. Um, it's like looking at everyone that's hurt and treating the one, some, the person that's most injured or most, that needs the most uh, help. Yeah, in basic terms, absolutely, right? It's a way of categorizing patients from least severe to not really severe at all, right? And the whole purpose of that is to make sure that we're utilizing resources effectively, which is the biggest thing, and also try to improve or increase the number of patients who are gonna survive the most. So again, that concept was initially started to utilize again earlier on, but really wasn't really widely accepted until World War I, where they utilized kind of like that color coding system that we use now, where green is, they're fine, red is, they're uh, a very critical patient, a black tag being typically they are in, in that imminent death scenario, right? Where they most likely will die unless they are taken to a hospital or given resources very quickly, right? So some examples of it, right? Where again, now we're starting to see this kind of case of pre-hospital medicine in very basic terms of providing care where their injury has occurred, right? And utilizing vehicles to actually move some of these patients, okay? So now we move on to then the industrial era a little bit. And the industrial era then starts to bring some additional issues, and I say issues in regards to dangers for people, right? Although a lot of good stuff came out as well too, right? So again, industrialization, of course, right? Immigration, so we have a huge boom in population, right? We have larger cities. We do have the world wars that occurred, right? Which was obviously a huge event. Um, but that being said though, in regards to medicine, because of those improvements, right? We started to see decrease in mortality, right? we started to see increase of the capabilities of these doctors and also the hospitals itself because of advancements in uh, clinical medicine, technology, so on and such, right? A lot of these treatments are also improving. Oh, wrong way. So what do we see here? We saw that the cause of death was starting to change. It was starting to shift. So we're starting to see a different type of patient population out in the world and we need to now start to figure out new ways to overcome this new issue. And what were some of the issues? So back in the day, what did we say was one of the leading causes? Things like infection. Well, things like the germ theory and penicillin did a really good job knocking a lot of those things out. So now people were living longer, right? We went from life expectancy of your early 30s or late 20s to now up into the 50s, 60s, and maybe even the 70s. So what do we now see with that, with that increase in life expectancy? Now we start to see some of those chronic illnesses occur, right? Cardiovascular disease, things like cancer, where of course, I'm not saying that those things can't happen at a young age. Of course they do, but again, we're starting to see a much more increase in those because they are typically more known as chronic diseases, right? Illnesses that are associated with typically with age. In addition to that, here's the big one, right? Accidental deaths are now starting to be first of all a thing and also increasing numbers. Why? Why? Yeah. People work in factories so they don't have safety protocols. Yeah, this picture right here, right? Big steel factories and all this stuff. They're building ships and they're building all kinds of different stuff. But what doesn't expect exist back then? OSHA, right? <laughs> There's no safety regulations. People are wearing hard hats. People are showing up to work in shorts. Who knows? So obviously, again, we have this environment of inherent danger with all this equipment that, oh, by the way, is probably the first time we're using some of this stuff, and we're still not really sure if it's truly safe or not, but we're using it because it works, right? And then on top of that, we have this scenario where people aren't really well protected. So yes, obviously, we're going to start to see accidental deaths increase, right? So we're working in more harsh conditions and harsher environments. So what do we do? Well, we said we should probably figure out some things to actually help these people where the injury has occurred. Now, we already said that that happened in the war setting, right? but what about civilians? Because now we're starting to see those accidental deaths, again, more traumatic injuries occur in that civ civilian population. So what do we do? So we started to come up with the concept of things like first aid, which still exists today, 
right? What is first aid class? Right? First aid class for the civilian population typically is very basic things that you can do to very quickly assess or identify, right? and then very quickly treat or at least stabilize until you can get them to definitive care, which in the first aid world would be, again, a higher level provider like 911, or again, things like a hospital. Right? And those concepts obviously were exactly or very close to being same back in the day. So the American Red Cross was one of the kind of core leaders in regards to developing this first aid system or first aid training programs. Right? So Claire Barton, who was a nurse, 19, or, I'm sorry, 1881, founded the American Red Cross, and their main goal was to essentially provide aid and assistance in times of disaster and war, right? Which again, today, still, American Red Cross, that is their main goal, right? So when big disasters like hurricanes and stuff like that come through, who are the ones providing additional shelter, food, and stuff like that, that's the American Red Cross, right? So that goal still exists even today. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, again, German Pennsylvania, they acclaim themselves as the birthplace of first aid training, at least in the United States. Right. And it was actually one of the first incidents or recorded incidents of first aid training to the civilian population right, uh, in American history. Now, why was that? So German Pennsylvania was a mining town, essentially. Right? And this first group of people who were trained were actually 25 miners who were trained with first aid. Now, why miners? Do you think that's, do you think that makes sense? Was it just a random group of people? What do we think? Yeah. It was a dangerous condition to work. Yeah, absolutely. And also dangerous, but where are you when you are a miner? Underground. Underground. And who knows how long it takes to get back up, right? Who knows if there's a cave in or who knows what, right? So again, a great example of a group of people or group of workers needing some type of care, again, not at a hospital, but we need something now and, now and here, right? My friend Jim broke his leg while he was trying to do something. Well, I need to stabilize that leg so I can even hopefully get him out of the mine, right? Or he's gonna bleed out because I can't stop the bleeding there, right? So again, very, very basic things, right? Of course, we've now advanced in regards to our first aid training based on you know, better equipment and stuff like that that we have, right? But here's a picture of one of the first original, right, first aid textbooks back in the day. So like I said, with advances in equipment comes cooler toys, right? And also ability to provide additional care. So 1928, Julian Wise, uh, which I believe he worked for the railroad, I believe it was a group of railroad workers who developed this initially, but founded the Roanoke in Roanoke, Virginia, the Roanoke Life Saving and First Aid Crew, right? Here is their kind of setup that they had originally, and they were kind of known as the first ever rescue squad, right? And the rescue squad, again, which is this picture right here, had very minimal equipment, and I say minimal as in, I think they had things like poison ivy wash, um, they had different little potions and lotions, who knows what, right? Uh, and some, again, compressed air and stuff like that to provide some um, of that additional oxygen and such for some of these patients. All right, so again, very, very basic stuff. What does this vehicle remind you of? It looks like an ambulance. Or again, you could probably spin it in a way that looks like an ambulance, sure. Right? But I'll tell you right now, a lot of these vehicles, what, serve, what purpose do you think a lot of these vehicles initially served before it was converted into this like 
rescue squad system thing, and they got it rebranded and re decaled and all that stuff. What do we think? Do we know of any vehicles back in the day where people could lay flat in the back of the trunk area? Yeah? Funeral homes, right? Purses. So we found that a lot initially in regards to, again, this transportation of sick patients and stuff like that, and these rescue squads, and as they start to become more known throughout the country and more start to pop up, well, funeral homes were supplying a lot of these vehicles, right? Morticians and funeral home workers were essentially some of the first EMS workers, as we call it, because, again, they kind of had the right vehicle for it, right? And what were they already doing? Well, they were already transport transporting bodies, right? So this was just an additional thing. Now, back in the day, I will say, again, very little treatment was being done. The priority was, let's just get him to the hospital with the minimal things that we can do, right? So again, who are the workers? Well, again, like I said, these were just people out in the workforce back in the day. Like I said, this rescue squad company was developed by railroad workers, right? Like I said, morticians, funeral home workers were also doing some of these services. So it really was a hodgepodge of different people coming through and really just trying to create a solution to an issue, which was things like accidental deaths and people dying outside of the hospital, right? So now we get into the issue we talked about last class, right? Which again is motor vehicle collisions, right? So that motor vehicle injuries, again, as cars or automobiles were developed, right? Increased traffic volume, well, obviously faster vehicles, we started to see improved roads in 1956, right, with the Federal Aid Highway Act, which developed and initiated that construction of all the interstate highways in the United States, or at least some of them. No real traffic laws. So again, we said and we talked about how it kind of set up the perfect picture for there being needed a really big solution to solve this issue. Now again, this issue went for a while. Right? We didn't really have a solution until we were going to talk about it in a little bit. But this was the big thing, right? That really kind of upstarted and kickstarted EMS systems in the country, right? So again, initially, before really EMS, again, that modern EMS model came into play, back in the day, they were still having these issues, right? People were still dying from motor vehicle collisions. Again, we talked about how none of the safety regulations and stuff like that weren't there, right? So again, new organizations did start to pop up. Things like fire departments, 1865, the first ever civilian ambulance, I believe in Ohio was developed, right? Where again, just like that rescue squad, very simple things, primary goal of just transporting from location A to B, B hopefully being a hospital, right? So funeral homes, like I said, rescue squads, 1928 being the first one, um, and then more popping up throughout the country as this issue of motor vehicle collisions and accidental deaths started to increase continuously. And then, of course, again, things like police departments also coming to play as well. Major cities like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia being one of the first ones to be developed throughout the country. All right. So again, like I said, we can't talk about the history of EMS without talking about the different wars. But World War I and World War II right, showed us these wars, unfortunately, showed us some creative ways that people could theoretically get injured because of all these kind of things that they were doing to try to hurt the opposing side. So again, obviously increased lethality of weapons. The Red Cross started to become a big factor in this in regards to not hurting people, but helping people. Right? I started to utilize motorized ambulances. Right? World War II, we started to have dedicated people in the military that were, their sole job was to provide help. Right? We started to see that concept of medics starting to become a real thing. Right? Concepts like pain control and fluid replacement things that we very much do today with our trauma patients, but initially pioneered and started to see uh, examples of that in World War II. Right. And then also this concept of now delayed evacuation of patients, but we've just been talking about getting patients from A to B as quickly as possible. Right. But why are we now suddenly saying, maybe we've got to slow down a little bit? What do we think? Which again is a concept we still stay true today. Right? We don't just always just pick someone up and just go to the hospital as fast as possible. There's a few things that we do. Why do we take a few of those extra minutes? What do we think? If I'm bleeding out, it's out of the road. I just got stabbed. 
What am I actively doing? What's going to kill me? Bleeding out. Yeah, I'm bleeding out. Right? How do you save my life? Tourniquet. Yeah, some kind of bleeding control, bleeding stoppage thing. Now, let's say if your primary goal was just, I got to take this person from hospital A to B and do nothing else. I just got to get them to the hospital because the doctors will be able to figure this out and fix it. What am I doing actively going from point A to point B? I'm bleeding out. Am I going to make it to point B? Hopefully, but maybe not, right? So that's why this concept of delayed evacuation, the delayed evacuation was more for stabilization of the patients, right? Stabilizing our patients initially and then moving them so that, yeah, there's a better chance of survival because we got to still worry about that time it takes from getting from point of injury to the hospital or whatever definitive care facility was, right? So during the, uh, the Korean War and the Vietnam Wars also, right, starting to now utilize things like helicopters, right? Every war or every movie with like the Vietnam War in it, what do you always see? Helicopters flying in, right? Um, they're playing Fortunate Son, right? Every single movie. Right? That's because, again, and the, all the movies depict it, because, well, helicopters were very heavily utilized in these wars. And it was not only utilized for combat, but also heavily utilized for medevacs, finally. Right? Which, again, super helpful because typically a lot of these settings, difficult terrain, hard to move through, hard to even drive through. So flying over that terrain and getting them to a much more, again, advanced hospital or location, whatever it may be, also, even now, utilizing fixed-wing aircraft to move them out of the country and somewhere else, potentially safer with more advanced capabilities. Right? All these things we utilize today developed during the wars in regards to a lot of these evacuation of patients. Right? The term medevac was coined during this period. Right? Things like the Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals and stuff like that, MASH, which was a TV show, Right, if you all know of it, obviously very much a Hollywood depiction of what was going on back in the day. But the unit itself was very much a real thing. Right? Providing some of those advanced level surgical and also medical capabilities out into the war setting to get some of those soldiers and stuff like that quicker help, which was super important and super helpful. Right? So again, some of the initial kind of iterations of that ambulance or motorized transport vehicle for these soldiers who were getting hurt. Right, and then of course also the medicat helicopters and stuff like that being utilized. So 1967 comes around and we say, okay, what's the other big thing that is killing people out in the world, outside of the hospital? We talked about trauma so far being one of the big ones. Okay, we're working on that a little bit. The other big thing was out of hospital cardiac care. Right? What, were, what was the other thing people were being affected by cardiac arrest, right? People are dying. So what do we do now if someone goes into cardiac arrest? Right, their heart stops, fall to the ground. What do we do? CPR. CPR, good start. Absolutely, call 911, right? Also what else? Yeah? Check for um, breathing or pulse. Yeah, check for breathing or pulse, all part of that CPR process. The other little machine that we use, what is that? Isn't it called an AED? So an AED, so an automatic external defibrillator, which is what AED stands for. I believe there's one in this building. Typically, every building has one, right? But what is it? If anyone's ever used an AED or has done training on it, you open it up, it starts screaming at you. It's super stressful. It's not supposed to be, but right, it starts to yell at you and all these instructions and tells you exactly what to do. The main goal of the AED being, let's get those pads on, right? The computer does its thing. It recognizes potentially a shockable rhythm in very basic terms. And if it does, well, it delivers that shock to reset the heart. Right? So that constant defibrillation was obviously not a thing back in the day. Right? That's something that had to be developed and invented. Well, we saw the first instances of that being utilized in the, um, in the civilian population. Right? Dr. Eugene Nagel was one of the, kind of the founding physicians who started this movement. Uh, in Miami in 1967, we started to see the use of portable defibrillators, right? With telemetry, telemetry just talking about how they can record what the heart's doing with the EKG, right? Those squiggly lines, essentially, right? And be able to record some of that stuff for, obviously, assessment purposes, right? And one of the first times we start to see firefighters being trained or cross-trained with some of this stuff, right? Very much utilizing 
uh, their original kind of already services and their equipment, the personnel to be able to kind of create what we have today as we like to call paramedics, right? We started to see providers out in the field now provide some more invasive and advanced medical techniques, if we want to call this advanced back in the day, right? But we started seeing an example of this and not just trauma care where some of that stuff obviously is a lot more basic, like things like splinting or bleeding management, right? Now we're talking about cardiac care and stuff like that, which is super exciting. Right. So again, we talked about how, like I said, um, all the rescue squads and stuff like that being developed, right? Those were additional things that helped, right? A lot of these companies and stuff like that provide some of these services very quickly to the civilian population. And then, of course, the government also gets involved, right, in regards to the healthcare aspect of things. Two big things like, that they initially did, because we said that EMS systems is a system, right? It's not just about the pre-health providers. Well, we also need the hospitals eventually to also get a little bit more advanced to be able to provide some of that care, right? So healthcare funding and policies related to that was one of the big goals of the federal government initially, right? So the Hospital Survey and Construction Act of 1964, also known as the Hill-Burton Act, Hill-Burton being the two senators who helped create this bill, right? They, so what this bill did essentially was provided grants for the construction of new hospitals in specifically locations where they believed, under looking at specific criteria like per, um, like per capita income, to see, again, where are these hospitals needed in regards to where is it most heavily populated, and also, is it sustainable financially in some of these locations, right? So, of course, it didn't give a hospital to every single group, but at least it started to increase the availability of medical care, right, in our civilian world. And then in 1986, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, right, also known as EMTALA, you might have heard of that fancy term if you've ever worked in a hospital or any type of healthcare setting, Right? This is very much something that exists today, very much so. Right? And TALA initially was created to prevent patient dumping. Right? Patient dumping essentially is talking about patients who would come into the hospital and they wouldn't get screened or properly treated and just kind of kicked out of the hospital because of whatever reason. Right? Whether it's because of race or because of their ability to pay, whatever it may be. So what EMTALA did was said, okay, you need to go ahead and still treat these people, especially in your ER, right? So Mtala, if you're coming into an ER with any type of medical emergency, true med medical emergency, things like chest pain or obviously traumatic injury, and or if you're in active labor, the hospital, no matter of what your status to pay or whatever it may be, must provide you initial assessment, treatment and stabilization, no matter what, right? Again, and this law still very much exists today. Right. Applies for EMS providers as well, pre-hospital, because that means that if we respond to you, we start to provide care, and if there's a medical necessity, I can't just say, mm, not today. Right. That'd be breaking EMTALA. Right. So again, this ensures public access to the civilian population and provides those services to everyone, so it improves public access. Right. And we know what happens if you break EMTALA? Monetary fund. Right? I believe it starts at like 50K for the hospitals and stuff like that. So again, significant amount. So something that we very much take seriously. Right? Medicare, Medicaid also being the other big one. We'll talk more about this in a future lecture when we talk about finances and stuff. So we'll kind of breeze through it. But again, having different insurance programs also now available to certain populations, things like the population of low income or uh, people over the age of 65. Right? So again, those insurance companies also starting to be developed. All right, any questions so far? So again, that all essentially laid out the picture to get to this, right? So we talked about a lot of different things in regards to advances in medicine and also kind of setting the picture for that public health problem that really needed to be fixed, which was again, accidental deaths and disabilities. So what kick-started it? So this document right here, known as the Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglect Disease of Modern Society, what this was, was it was also known as the white paper. And the white paper typically is just something that provides recommendations for some type of problem, right? Provides a sol potential solution. The white paper, 
or this document right here was not any piece of legislature, it wasn't a bill, it wasn't a law, it wasn't a regulation, it wasn't anything like that. Basic terms, this was a research paper. Right? It was a research paper conducted by the National Academy of Sciences and the President's Commission on Highway Safety. And what this paper outlined was that, hey, we have a huge issue on our hands, a lot of people are dying on the highways and on the roads because of motor vehicle collisions, and a lot of the deaths and injuries could be prevented if we had something in place. That if was EMS systems or pre-hospital care, right? So again, this paper really outlined that there was a huge lack of pre-hospital care in the system, and that was why one of the reasons, or one of the big reasons, why a lot of people were dying and we couldn't save these people. So this paper really kick-started a huge effort to provide that pre-hospital care right, in the United States and where EMS was really kind of born. right? That's why the white paper in the field of EMS is so important because that was really kind of like the true stepping off point in regards to today's modern EMS systems. Okay. So in response to said research paper, essentially, right, federal government said, OK, we got to do something about this. So the National Highway Safety Act of 1966 introduced the Department of Transportation and under that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is what NHTSA and DOT stand for. Okay? So again, two purposes here. The main goal of the DOT and, of course, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, fix this issue. Of course, deal with the traffic side of things as well because that needs continual infrastructure and improvement. But deal with this public health issue. We've got to do something about this. Figure something out is essentially what was said to them with the creation of the Department of Transportation and NHTSA, so on and such. Right? And again, NHTSA exists still today. Like we talked about last class, right? NHTSA is in charge there. Again, their main goal is to provide safety and improve safety on the highways and stuff like that. Right? The, um, all those PR things that you see out, you know, don't drive and text all the click it and ticket, all those things, right? Those are all NHTSA things to try to improve civilian safety out in the highways and stuff like that. Right. So again, this was probably one of the first federal EMS pieces of legislation, right? And what this did was obviously with the creation of this, we fell into this naturally because that's where the major problem was, right? We were essentially just a solution. We were a tool that was being utilized or being implemented to fix this issue that was happening on the highways and stuff. Right? So what did it do for EMS? Well, it standardized education and curriculum for EMS. So a curriculum was finally created to standardize EMS care throughout the country. Why was that important? Well, we just talked about what type of people were providing care. Right? It was just a culmination. It was a hodgepodge of different people right? with really no healthcare background. Right? These were just kind of workers. They were just civilians. Right? And Obviously, no matter where I go in the country, I want to be able to get the same level of care, right? Whether I'm in California, in Maryland, Florida, Alaska, who, no matter what, right? I want some type of standardization in regards to at least the basic level of care I'm going to get. So we standardize, again, a lot of those training systems or training programs to be able to do that, right? And at least to start providing a standardized level of care for these people who are getting hurt on the highways. So what it also did was, again, it also helped advance some of the hospital settings as well, right? especially with trauma centers. Okay? East Coast has done a lot of things for advances in medicine, and especially in pre-hospital medicine. And funny enough, Maryland, and Baltimore specifically, has done really a lot right, in regards to advancing some of the pre-hospital uh, care aspects. So for example, right, with the EMS Systems Act, right, it helped develop or helped at least fund and stuff like that, or recognize trauma centers being an actual thing. Right? So the Shock Trauma Center down in uh, downtown Baltimore, you all have probably heard of it. Right? Uh, Dr. Callie was one of the founders for Shock Trauma and was one of the first shock trauma or trauma, major trauma centers in the United States. Right? So obviously they had a lot of innovative things. One of the big things that came out was the golden hour. Right? Anyone ever heard of the term golden hour before? Heard of it? Well, what is it? I mean, I heard of it as a song. <laughs> as a song, okay, fair. Okay, what else? Anyone know? I think it's like um, the, the time frame that you need to get to the hospital. Yeah. To get the, how, how you came to 
Exactly, right, and especially for trauma patients. So the golden hour, I, which I will say is a little bit under hot water because, not necessarily hot water because the golden hour isn't wrong by any means, but with research, we probably found, yeah, the sooner the better, right? Maybe an hour is a little too much. Maybe like 45 minutes is a little bit better, right? But anyway, so the golden hour initially, yeah, that is something that they developed and it stated that if you get to them to a trauma center within an hour, someone who's had a significant traumatic injury, the survivability increases significantly, but over an hour, survivability decreases, right? So the shock trauma center was one of the big ones that did that and with the golden hour, Right, shock trauma worked with Maryland State Police to create, right, one of the very first civilian EMS systems, or I'm sorry, not EMS systems, medevac systems specifically for trauma patients, right? So again, in the state of Maryland, the Maryland State Police have an aviation division where still very much today they provide the civilian 911 medevac services for the state of Maryland, right? In 1970 was one of the first times, and this apparently is the picture, I can't confirm nor deny, but it was on their website, so I'm going to believe them, right? Um, of one of the first instances they utilized a helicopter to actually transport a patient to shock trauma, right, back in 1970. So Maryland State Police, one of the first ones to do it, which is pretty cool. Huge advances, obviously, now in regards to technology, right? So what you're looking at there is the helipad of shock trauma where they have those helipads where, again, helicopters can land. You could take them straight into the trauma resuscitation unit at shock trauma, which is pretty cool. Right, and obviously they've had some pretty, pretty big advances in regards to helicopters. Um, the new ones that they have, I believe 2013, they got their newest iteration and just again, for example, not testable material by any means, but just good for y'all to know, state police has about, uh, what is that, four, seven? Right, seven helicopters throughout the state of Maryland. They have more on backups. I believe the division has technically 10 helicopters and also one fixed wing aircraft for all their services, but they have seven kind of strategically placed throughout the entire state of Maryland so that, yeah, they can get to you within a certain amount of time and also get downtown or to neighboring states to get you to a trauma center pretty quickly, right? Which is pretty cool. So again, Maryland has done a lot of firsts in regards to trauma, which is pretty awesome. So as we get more into, again, this modern EMS system, so to this point, we know that it's an issue. We've started to fix it by you know, advancing uh, hospital systems, we start to develop curriculum, but we really don't really have EMS systems truly yet quite developed, right? We don't have EMS companies or stuff like that truly developed throughout the country. We just have a group of people essentially still doing what they're doing. They're getting better training, but we don't have anything established yet. Well, in 1973, that changed, right? The Systems Act or EMS Systems Act in 1973, what it did was, it provided that systems approach finally by providing categorical project grants to people to be able to develop and fund the creation of new EMS systems. Because of this, about 300 EMS systems were created throughout the country, right? And what it did, it provided a funding cycle to be able to create these systems based on if you could prove that you could have or provide these 15 essential components of EMS is what they decided. Right? And these 15 components, what it did was essentially it laid out what are the minimal things needed for what they believed at least for an EMS system to exist. Right? We talked to some, about a few of these things in the last class, but if you look at some of these lists, right, things like manpower, training, communications, again, the 15 things very much, again, essential to what EMS systems pretty much have today right? and really to operate. And we'll talk more specifically about some of those things again uh, next class, I believe. All right, so now again, we start to really have EMS systems as we truly do today, starting to be created for the first time. So now we're starting to look a little bit better. Trauma hospitals, we start to have better trained and standardized personnel. And now we also have a system in place that can provide things like the transportation services and the operations a little bit more effectively as well. So we're looking pretty good. 1980s, 1981 specifically, we started to see a change in funding and a change of power a little bit, right? Up until then, the federal government really had kind of a stake in regards to what EMS systems looked like for the country. 1981 actually ended the funding under the EMSS Act. Something else came in, and actually the government started to provide block grants to the states specifically for EMS funding and not to the EMS agencies specifically. 
What this did was it provided a state approach to EMS systems, which again today, every state has their own EMS agency, right? My EMS license doesn't work in Pennsylvania, right? Because I'm a Maryland provider. If I want to go to Pennsylvania, I got to go through their system. Why do you think in the United States we're not a federal EMS system, we're state approach? What do you think? And I want you to think difference in regards to states. Think the difference between Florida and Alaska. Both in the US. Yeah. Population wise? Okay, population wise, some areas have more populations. Sure, great. Differences in like issues that would happen to people. So in Alaska, it snows a lot, so that would be like. Yeah, absolutely. Every state is very different, right? Some states similar, sure. But again, we very much realize the fact that yeah, each state has its own needs. Like we can't just do this cookie cutter, uh, cookie cutter method for every single state, right? So this allowed the states to customize a little bit based on the standard, right? And be able to mold it to their specific needs a little bit. So again, our protocols in the state of Maryland are different from let's say California, right? Or are definitely places like Alaska, where Alaska has a lot more about things like cold emergencies and how to treat patients who are hypothermic. In Florida, that's not the main goal of what they do down there, right? Over in California and kind of in our kind of central states, right, we might do more things with wilderness rescue, things like that, because again, national parks and more of the terrain out there as well, right? So again, operationally and clinically, there's a lot of difference between from state to state. So this provided a little bit more of a customized approach, which was super great, right? In addition to that, we were not only just worried about adult trauma and cardiac care, but we started to expand there are absolutely different patient populations out there, right? Things like our pediatric population, right? So the EMSC was developed, which is emergency medical services for children specifically, right? And they kind of dictate some of the protocols that we utilize uh, in EMS in regards to our relating to children. So 1990s, okay, so at this point we started to develop, things are stabilized, right? We start to see stabilized care. We start to see systems exist out in the field Right? But we need continual improvement. We're seeing at this point a lot of these systems, the 300 around that was created, right? they have those 15 components, components essential. So they're, they're really kind of functioning at the minimal level, right? just to get by. Great. But how can we now get up to optimal? Right? How do we get up to the 100%? Well, in 1990, right, EMS systems development was kind of a big thing that we were thinking about looking into the future. So the EMS agenda for the future in 1996 was published, and that specifically went over 14 attributes of EMS that they believed needed further improvement. Right? Things like finance, EMS research. Like I said, we'll talk about the 14 in another class specifically, but it laid out, again, what is now the 50-year goal, essentially, for EMS systems. Okay? Uh, during that time, we also revised the EMT and paramedic curriculum. Obviously, since then, we revised it again multiple times. Right? So we started to really start to see a change in regards to not only just operating at a minimal level, which at this point we're saying we did, but how can we now improve and become more efficient? Right? And now start to get a little bit more exciting and fun because now we're starting to see, again, pulling in research and pulling in different technologies right? to see what else can we do. And that's very much what we're doing now. Right? So in regards to that EMS agenda for the future, we ended last class talking about EMS 2050. Right, which published in 19, or I'm sorry, 2019. Right? That is kind of our new agenda now going into the future, saying that we've kind of met the goals of the 1996 one. Right? It's a similar concept, but in addition to that, like I said, we can have a little bit more fun now. And that fun comes in the form of improved technology, right? improved clinical practices, where we now have special care transport teams right? that are dedicated for those like ICU type patients or those critical care patients. So we have critical care paramedics who are flying on helicopters, driving in ambulances, so on and such. <clears throat> we talk about all the hospitals having specialty services as well. Right? We have our stroke hospitals, trauma centers, but also burn centers. In Maryland, we have an eye center, a hand trauma center, right? to be able to provide some of these very specialized uh, types of care to those specific types of patients. We start to see continued provider type diversity. So we start to see a lot of different types of providers out there, right? Kind of doing an interdisciplinary approach to 
public care or public health and also just pre-hospital care. And then also providing that care based on evidence and research and not just doing it because we've been always doing it in the past. Right? We've seen a huge shift in that in probably the past five, 10 years of really advancing medicine in the pre-hospital setting and providing evidence-based approach right? versus things we've just always done. Right? I'll tell you things like backboarding. Y'all have seen kind of like the concept of someone getting pulled out of a vehicle if they got into a collision. Right? We put this stiff board behind them and strap them all up and stuff like that. Right? Even that concept wasn't truly evidence-based, fun enough. Right? So again, we've now expanded on that, did some research, and yeah, we found some better ways to potentially stabilize our patients. Maybe not every single patient needs all that stuff. Because how comfortable do you think that is after you just got into a motor vehicle collision? You're already sore, hurting, now I'm going to strap you down to this hard, cold, uh, cold plastic board. Probably not super comfortable, right? Seeing that sometimes it can do a little bit more damage than good. Right? So again, we've done some research and provide now that evidence-based approach to things like backboarding, which is just one example. Right? And then technology and education. Right? Huge, huge, huge advancements, again, especially in the past few years, right, in regards to technology out in the field, uh, in regards to not only pre-hospital, but also in-hospital care as well. Right? And then education and training. It's insane the type of things that we have available now in regards to training and simulation. Right? That we'll go over more in another class, but being able to provide kind of that hands-on experience before they hit the, uh, actual, uh, at the actual streets, right? Huge thing, right? Where we have mannequins who can literally, again, this one can, they can breathe, they can talk, they can shed tears, they can do all kinds of stuff, right? Which is pretty cool. Okay. And like I said, that technology aspect of things, right? Huge, huge, huge advancements. We went from the wine barrel, essentially, right, at the beginning of class to things like this. That costs, obviously, a significant amount of money, but can provide some really cool type of care to our patients out in the field in the pre-hospital setting, right? A lot of things that we've been doing in the hospital, but now let's miniaturize it, hopefully, take it out to the field so we can provide that advanced level of care even sooner, which is pretty awesome, right? Things like our video laryngoscopes, right, the thing we use to stick a breathing tube down someone's throat, Right? We've got a C down there. Well, back in the day, we didn't have a fancy camera at the end of it. So now we have a screen that helps our process. Right? We have portable labs we can do out in the field. Take a little bit of blood, tells us kind of what's going on with the blood. Right? We talked about the manual CPR machine. Right? But things like portable ultrasound, right? portable ventilators. Right? And again, also advances in our defibrillators and telemetry right? types of equipment, this specifically being the LifePak 15, which is the Pretty commonly utilized one out there. Zoll is another big company that uh, provides these services for uh, EMS systems, right? Costs a good chunk of money, but again, the things that we can do now, right? I'll tell you right now, again, I started about 10, 15 years ago. Half of this stuff didn't exist yet. So we've had, even in those past 10 years, huge advances in technology in regards to pre-hospital care, right? Howard County and Maryland State Police now also carry blood for the first time which is super exciting for our trauma patients, right? So again, they provide that service also. Before, again, a few months ago, you had to get to the hospital to receive blood, right? And of course, that comes with its own right, evidence-based protocols and research and clinical practices and equipment as well, right, in regards to a lot of those things, okay? So again, to look into the future, right, talk about EMS 2050 being kind of the new guiding principle for us moving in. Uh, kind of into the new era of EMS, where we say, we're doing pretty good right now, right? But again, just like the EMS agenda for the future, what else can we still further improve, right? And we kind of noted some of those being public health, right? Providing that equitable type of care to our patients, right? Being more sustainable and also well integrated with a lot of these systems that we kept talking about, right? And then of course, again, operationally, things to consider for the future, right? Things like infectious diseases, public health, which again, we very much felt, uh, felt the effects of with COVID and stuff like that, right? Homeland security disaster responses, right? Those things inevitably, unfortunately, are still happening. So operationally and clinically, how can we further support those things and diving into the world of disaster management and disaster health as well, right? And that all comes down to the whole well-integrated aspect. All right? All right, so any questions? Any questions? All right, uh, yep, question.
Um, are you a part of like any research into EMS? Like how you talked about how patients don't really like the um, plastic board. Do you do anything like that? Or? So I personally, currently, am not doing something. Um, but in the past, I have, and then also we obviously have a department of faculty who do that uh, all the time, right? Um, but yeah, but again, paramedics and stuff like that very much have a say in regards to some of those protocols. Um, I know the state of Maryland specifically, we have a protocol review board essentially that every single year we get through, uh, get together and try to figure out you know, what are the new protocols that we want to implement for this year. Or again, what are some of the ones that we got to revise and stuff like that, right? And those change from year to year, at least in the pre-hospital setting, right? So yeah, research absolutely occurring. Yeah, so good question though. Any other questions? All right, great. Uh, so next class, we'll talk a little bit more about some of those legislative pieces that we talked about today. Go a little bit more in depth with it. Okay? And that's going to be it. All right, y'all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.